Aoki Gahara, or in short, Gahara, the suicide forest of Japan. This is a beautiful, vast, rugged, dense forest compromised of 12 square miles. One can expect bubbling brooks, dense soft moss with rocky, uneven terrain. Here, tall juniper trees grow with their roots gnarled and twisted and amongst the ancient lava rocks that lie beneath the tranquility. Several small caves are present, most of which fill with frozen ice during the coldest months of the year. Regardless of the season, the forest does remain a bit chilly, being at the foot of the legendary Mount Fuji. You might not, however, expect to find personal belongings left by those who entered, but never seemed to leave. Backpacks, partial bottles of water, perhaps a lady's brush or a cosmetic mirror. It is not uncommon to find tents or makeshift shelters of campsites, although overnight stays are prohibited. A place where park ranger-type positions are held by those who venture deep into the labyrinth of woods, seeking the bodies of suicide victims. These brave souls often follow ribbons and strings strung across the forest like cobwebs, leading to those who fell victim as prey. Today it is considered haunted by ghosts and has a kiss of death luring its victims like a twisted fairy tale. Join us if you dare for another installment of Nightmares on the Lost Highway as tonight we dive deeper into the suicide forest of Japan. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. So to preface this, first I want to say that we've said this in many, 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 many episodes. Many. These names are in Japanese, and we're going to butcher them. I can guarantee you. Uh, Eric and I couldn't even agree on the pronunciation of Aoki Gahara. Aoki Gahara. So we're just going to say these with the American pronunciation for the spelling and apologize to Japanese-speaking peoples, and we'll try harder in the future. We're, we're just a bunch of hillbillies here. And before we go any further, so that it... So we, we want to make sure that we cover this and we'll talk about it again. We are in no way trying to glorify suicide with this. We've picked a location that is famous uh, for its allure. Um, but the site itself is a beautiful, beautiful forest, a beautiful piece of natural scenery. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that. Um, but if you're having thoughts of suicide, if you're, you're thinking about it, uh, remember there are people out there that, that can help. You've got people that care about you, rely on you. And People love you. So uh, the we're gonna we're gonna repeat this later too. But the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, the number is one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five one eight hundred two seven three talk T A L K. So please, please, if you have those thoughts, reach out for help. Aoki Gahara, you could say in in, in Japanese. I believe certain translations call it Blue Tree Meadow. It's also called the Sea of Trees. Those who have seen it say that it is a beautiful forest. There's lots of pictures online that you can look at. It seriously looks like some of the scenes out of like Lord of the Rings yeah, or something. It's, it's, I mean, it's gorgeous. like a primeval forest. And, and it just, it has its own unique, distinct look about it because of the way it was formed. Lying um, literally right at the base of Mount Fuji. Yeah. 
the trees are so thick that, that people say that the sunlight can hardly reach the ground. Uh, and native speakers in the region prefer that you say Aoki Gahara or, or Aoki Gahara Jukai instead of calling it the Suicide Forest. They don't they don't like that name for obvious reasons. They're yeah. trying to steer away from that. However, as we were talking before, especially here in America, I, I think it's obviously easier to remember and say, yeah. and that's where that label's kind of got stamped. Now, like you said, uh, the the Sea of Trees here sits on the northwestern flank of Mount Fuji on the island of Honshu of Japan. It's about a two-hour drive west of Tokyo. It's 12 square miles and sits on a bed of hardened lava left over from the last major eruption of Mount Fuji in 864 AD. Something I found interesting is that it's home to many, many caves. Yes. Obviously, being a lava field and lava tubes and, 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 and pockmarks. Uh, three, especially, you have the Nurasawa Ice Cave. It's a naturally frozen cave that stays frozen all year round. Uh, even in summertime, the average temperature rarely gets above 37.4 degrees Fahrenheit in, inside the cave. Very chilly. Uh, it's also a, apparently a popular destination for tourists and school trips. So, uh, Then you have the Lakeside Bat Cave, which is home to a large population of bats. Uh, there's not as many bats in there now as there used to be, thanks to human development and depredations. We brought the, you know, they, they brought this bat community almost to the brink of extinction. But now that they're protected, their numbers are on the rise. And then there's Fugaku Wind Cave, which is the largest of several lava tubes to be found throughout the forest. Uh, it is over 600 feet long and about 18 feet average in height. The reason it's called the Wind Cave is because it's large enough to have a, a wind pattern that blows through it. And it's, it's, I guess it's consistent enough that it's, you know, that, that wind is pretty, and it, it travels unbroken. Now, again, you know, as, as Bill's describing this, and for those of you who may not be familiar... This isn't just some random forest that's hard to get to. This is like a national yeah. park. Uh, it's a very beautiful area. Uh, the Japanese government has, you know, they upkeep it. There's huge parking areas. I mean. Well, for example, all three of those caves that I talked about are have been declared natural monuments of Japan since 1929. I mean, this is. Long, this, long history. Yeah, it, it's it's protected. You know, it's, it's a protected natural resource. So parts of the, the forest are very, very dense, like we said before, and the porous lava rock helps to absorb sound. So they, they say there's a pervading sense of loneliness when you're in the Aoki Gahara, the Sea of Trees, uh, that you just don't hear a lot of sound. There's not a lot of bird song. Uh, there are animals in, in the forest. Uh, for example, they have Asian black bear, moles, bats, mice, deer, foxes. I mean, kind of the regular animals you'd expect animals to find. Expect, yeah. However, they are very rare, very very rarely seen by travelers in the forest they tend to stick to the deeper paths well and again with the with the park there's the the main path if you will that they suggest that you stay on because it is easily to get lost this forest is so dense and there's some dangerous areas because of the old volcanic activity there's a lot of jagged sharp rocks and bluffs so they have that main path kind of roped off obviously it's not that big a deal to throw your yeah. leg over the rope and you know you can you can take off even though you're not really supposed to now, like we said earlier, due to its origins on a field of volcanic rock, uh, the, the tree roots don't get to grow deeply into the ground. So a lot of the trees almost look like they're standing on top of the ground where their roots are sort of elevated. That gnarled look. Yeah. It's definitely a fantasy setting and almost. Like, like using something out of Labyrinth or Lord of the Lord Rings. Lord of the Rings, yeah. Open pits are pretty common. One of the pictures I saw that I thought was kind of haunting was of a, a pool. One of those volcanic pits had filled with water and it was almost... You know, like when you see water in, in wintertime with the snow where it looks pitch black, that, that oh, pool yeah. is just black. Like black tar is almost what and, it looks like, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of 
kind of kind of haunting for to look learning. at. One of the things, like you said, you know, you don't really expect to find when you're walking through the forest is there's a lot of human detritus left behind. Human debris, shoes. They they said bottles of of beer and sake are pretty common. Mm-hmm. Suicide notes pinned to trees. I've got a couple of those ties and clothes and, and things like that. Things that people have left Makeshift behind. Camps, tents, and, and again, we don't want to sleeping wanna, bag. Yeah, we don't want to glorify suicide, but apparently, you know, it, it since especially since the 1960s, this, the um, sea of trees here has become kind of synonymous with suicide, and, and again, leading to the westernized nickname, which you know, the the suicide forest. I I did find, and I wanted to. to give the source uh, there is a youtube documentary and i believe it's from 2012 and it's simply titled suicide forest in japan but there was a japanese scientist uh, who is kind of the main uh, spokesperson who they follow in to the park uh, and he studies old volcanic activity but he also donates his time there i'll say loosely as a park ranger but also slash counselor so he goes into the forest donates his time there Apparently, it is not that uncommon to come across people who are camping. And again, as I previously stated, it's a national park, much like the ones here in America. You're in this one. You're not really supposed to be spending the night. You know, it's visit by day, gone by by dusk. Well, and, and part of that is obviously due to the reputation. Yes, they don't want people there unsupervised, so to speak. Right. But he comes across a lot of people who are camping out, and I will say, um, if he's any representation of of the rest that work there, very calm, cool, collective, very polite. He would approach like tents where you could see where people were there. And, you know, he didn't like, you know, rattle on the tent or beat on the door. <laughs> hey, you need to get out of here immediately. He would, you know, he would just kind of squat down next and, hey, is, is everything okay? Is there anything that you need? You know, um, I don't want you to think that you're alone. You know, you're not supposed to be spending the night here, but if you need to do you, that's fine. But, you know, uh, but it, it, that documentary, to me was one of the best source materials that I came across in researching this. In the opening of it, uh, oh, first let me give you his name, and I'll butcher this, but it's uh, uh, Azu Hanano, I believe is the way you pronounce his name. And again, I apologize, I probably butchered that. Well, before we get too much further, uh, a little personal anecdote. When when I was my late teens, early 20s, I became fascinated with Japanese anime, Mm -hmm. and I thought to better enjoy anime, I would try to learn Japanese. I try to teach myself Japanese, and what I almost immediately learned is that even when you write Japanese in English, we we pronounce it the way it's written. That is almost one hundred percent wrong. You lose; it's lost so, in translation. So just understand that. Yeah, again, like I said, we're gonna we're gonna mess these names up. Well, this scientist, he's lived in the area for about thirty years, and as I stated previously, he studies volcanic eruptions and and kind of the aftermath and then the rebirth. He, in the opening of it, the documentary follows him. He pulls his car into one of the designated parking areas. And he notes as he's walking through, and it it was just so creepy because it was like an afterthought as the, the film crew was following him. And, uh, of course, he's speaking in, in Japanese, but you have the captions on. And, and it says, um, you know, he notes there's a white minivan that uh, he's seen abandoned here in the parking lot. And it's, it's sat there for several months. He says it's presumed to be left there by yet a, another victim who entered the forest but uh, never returned to, to take the van away. And they kind of stopped for a few moments there, and you notice that there's already pine needles and sticks and debris that started collecting on the hood and, I mean, kind of coated with dust. You can tell, I mean, just it hasn't been moved. And it's almost like nature was already starting to retake what was not natural to the forest. 
the camera kind of scans through the passenger window and you can see a folded map that's there. Uh, they go through to kind of the back hatch window and you can see a pair of sneakers and some duct tape and a backpack and just supplies. And he says this is very, very common. Again, I don't know if it's the Japanese culture or whatever, but there, there doesn't seem to be the urgency to remove a vehicle that's been parked there or abandoned for months. But it, it just kind of, to me, set the storyline that it's so sad that this is just, I mean, it accepted. I'm not sure that's the best word for it. It's expected, I guess. Well, you know, as I was, was doing the research, one of the things that they came up pretty quickly was that the Japanese don't share our westernized views sometimes on suicide. Not that it's an accepted practice, but it's not demonized the way it is in, in, in right. you know, the Western religions. There, there are places in America where it's actually illegal to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, as if, you know, after the fact, they're going to be able to do anything about it. But in Japan, it's, you know, especially even like feudal Japan, it was an honorable practice. He, he actually mentioned, he said, you know, in the old days of Japan, suicide was considered a, a most act of uh, almost exclusive for samurais. Uh, in other cases, he said, with extremely poor families, the children would abandon their elders in the mountains when they could no longer care for them. And, and that was an honorable death. But these people at this time, you know, they were not taking their lives because they couldn't adapt to society. It was more out of necessity, you know, back hundreds of years ago. So, yeah, obviously a lot, a lot has changed. But, yeah, Japanese and American thoughts and philosophies are definitely different. In the lead-in part of this, and I think, Bill, you touched on it, as you go into the the park, there are several visible active signs put out by the government talking about suicide, suicide awareness. Yeah, I have a couple of those signs. You know, they, they've got, I mean, really, I consider poignant messages on them. Uh, I got a couple of them here. Your life is something precious that was given to you by your parents. Mm-hmm. And then another example, think about your parents, siblings, and children once more. Do not be troubled alone. Yeah, and, and they have these signs all over the place. They've, they've posted security cameras at the entrances. They've taken a lot of efforts to make taking your life difficult. Raise the height of bridge rails. Train volunteers to talk to potentially suicidal visitors. Uh, even increase police presence at the entrances for you know to, to watch for people who, who could be a danger to themselves. Now, the scientist, he goes on to explain, he goes, uh, locals don't commit suicide there. Very, 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 very seldom. He said, as children, anybody that's that's close to the Mount Fuji area, he says, as children, they're they're told don't go there. Uh, it's a very scary forest. The, the path is open for the public. However, you know you can't follow the trail uh, because the signs say you know you get lost, stay directly on the path, that kind of stuff. Aokigahara itself is sort of a strange location. Obviously, again, you know you have this forest that's grown up on the side of a mountain over a, a lava field. It has uh, been claimed that compasses just do not behave properly inside the forest. Needles of magnetic compasses uh, will move if placed directly on the lava due to the high iron content of the, the lava rock. And that makes sense. Uh, they do line with the rock's natural magnetism. Mm-hmm. The rock's natural magnetism. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a good-looking guy, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, but this does vary by the iron content, the strength, and, and, um, and by location. However, if you hold a compass up at normal height, it will function properly. So that it's just a side effect of the iron and magnetism inside the, the lava. 
But the ground's high iron content does affect GPS and cell phone signals. And again, that makes perfectly good sense. So again, yeah, if you're in there and, and you know, you're cut off from and, and the GPS getting lost. We've talked about that with some of our ghost hunting and stuff, you know, that that could possibly drain batteries. That kind of gives uh, humans often a kind of a nausea, vertigo feeling. You know, going back uh, to the scientists, basically over the last 20 years, there are over 100 suicides that are actually documented in the forest. And there could be many, many more that just haven't been discovered. I have here... Uh, this is the second most popular suicide destination in the world, uh, second only to the Golden Gate Bridge, which people pointed out it is, uh, we don't call it the Suicide Bridge. Right. So why does Aokigahara get saddled with that nickname? Yeah. It said that it, it, it's estimated that yearly 50 to 100 people walk into the forest and never return. Now, those aren't necessarily all suicides. It is extremely easy to get lost. Mm-hmm. And with the caves and volcanic pits... You know, Just like mountain climbing or anything else, yeah, slip and fall, accidentals. But there are annual searches conducted by police, volunteers, and journalists, and that started in 1970. But I think in, in 2010 is one of the years I specifically had here. 247 people attempted, attempted suicide in the forest. 54 of those were successful. So uh, these rates do increase in March, which happens to coincide with the end of the fiscal year in Japan. So possibly financial worries and struggles could be a motivator in some of those uh as of 2011 the most common means of suicide have been hanging and drug overdose Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. well to kind of help clarify to some of these stories um as you would go into the forest and, and these rangers and volunteers there's often signs of long ribbons and strings leading down from the main trail uh deeper into the forest uh, these are left by those that uh, they say are still indecisive about their decision for suicide. And the thought is it would be much like in spelunking or caving, you, you would leave a string to be able to follow your way back out so you didn't get lost. So obviously if people are doing this, either one, they're just trying to camp and they want to find their way back. Or as the scientists were saying, that they're still trying to make up their mind about ending their life or you know how they want to handle it. It is unfortunate that the the park rangers often find many of the bodies, though, by following these strings and ribbons. Now, you have to remember, again, this forest is, is huge. It's vast. It's 12 square acres. It's not flat. It has rolling hills, creeks, caves, jagged bluffs, you know, outcroppings, as, as Bill and I were talking about. It's not uncommon, like in, in the recording of the uh, YouTube documentary, they, they came across a old campsite by following some of these ribbons uh, and string. And when you come across a campsite, the rangers are talking that it's always very scary for them because why is it still there? Well, I, I can't imagine a job like that. You don't know what you're going to walk up You on. may find a body inside or you may find suicide notes or, you know, it, it, it would have to be a very grief burdening job, you know, to have that to go out. In one example... They followed the trail of ribbons for some distance, and at first it took them to a tent site. They were very happy to find there was no body there, so they thought, okay, this is a good thing. However, they noticed more strings and ribbons, so they continued to fall. And they came across, and I thought this was an interesting story, that's why I chose to share it. It was a a large, I would say close to three foot tall cloth doll turned upside down, and its feet were tied to the tree with rope, and its arms and hands were, you know, strung, drooping down up past its head. 
It had a nail through the chest and two nails through each of the hands. This is the worst possible spinoff of Toy Story you could ever describe. Uh, yeah, yeah. I hadn't even put that connection together, <laughs> but you know, absolutely, yes. And so they're looking at this, the park rangers and stuff, as they're documenting, and they're like, you know, wow. And they were trying to explain, you know, why. You know, why is this here? And they, they went on, they thought, well, maybe it's a prank or maybe it's a joke. However, in Japanese society, this is actually a sign of oppression or someone tortured by society in their life. Just a short distance away from this upside down crucified type doll, they had taken a piece of wood and made kind of a makeshift sign and nailed it. Very similar, similar nail and similar height to a tree. And in Japanese, it simply read suicide note. Um, so... As they went on to explain this, they're saying this person obviously put a lot of thought into this. They they were probably there many days, and you know the park ranger kind of broke down and said, you know, maybe if we could have found them sooner, we could have stopped them. They're still hopeful at this point that the the individual made it out. The name, which I won't say, but it was written on one side of the wooden note, and then simply the words, "I came here because nothing good ever happened in my life." don't look for me. It's just so tragic. And, 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 you know, the ranger speculates on the poor soul. They, they believe they were hesitant to die. Otherwise they wouldn't have taken the time to leave such markings or recordings. They obviously wanted to be found or they wanted these items to be found as they were trying to tell their story. Other, you know, he says when they come in, like you had mentioned, hanging and, and drug overdoses seems to be the, the most typical. Uh, hangings, I think, was slightly the highest. The, the path they continued to follow and as they kind of come up over top of a hill, they actually saw four ropes kind of woven, intertwined together to make a stronger rope was swinging in the wind from a, a branch. Now, the, the noose section that would go around your neck had been cut off. So that to them told them they had been found. And obviously that's how they, they lowered the body. These ropes were still hung in the tree, which was very creepy. You know, again, it was the person was assumed to be found, that they'd hung themselves. The ropes, they said, they left intentionally, one, because they were too hard to climb up the tree to take down, but in Japanese culture, it seems a little bit weird to us, but for them, it was kind of more so a sign of respect and yet a sign of caution and understanding. So again, just kind of setting that light, the Japanese have a total different way of thinking about things than, you know, the Americas. I think in America, we definitely would have cut down all the ropes. We would have tried to erase any you know, sign of that. Yeah. Well, it was believed that the the practice of uba sute was practiced at Aogigahara well into the 19th century. Uh, this would be we would call it sinicide, I believe is is the phrase, the word. But this is basically where the infirm or the elderly would would be carried or, or would themselves leave the village or the home mm-hmm. uh, to find some remote and desolate place uh, to be left to die. So now, according to According to Japanese historians, that was never really a common practice in Japan. Um, but it is worth noting that Japan's elderly population is noted for its above-average suicide rate, even for Japan. Hmm. So that's kind a, of a Native American tradition. I've read a lot about. Yeah. You know, the Indians would go off to to basically have an honorable death. Now, uh, some Japanese spiritualists believe that that due to the suicides and the number of people that have passed away in Aokigahara, that those uh, dark energy, the negative spiritual energy, if you will has permeated the trees, uh, generating possible paranormal activity and, and possibly preventing those who do die there from, from leaving this realm. 
So, along those lines, I was going to talk a little bit about the, the Japanese Yurei. Well, I think your your statement there, again, if you're a believer or, or of a skeptic, when you have that type of tragic things reoccurring, I know I have felt that way in different areas, so I, I definitely understand that. Now, when we say Yurei in, in America, in the Western world, we would say that was was a kind of ghost. Um, but they're the, the spirits of those that were left behind to die or the spirits of those who died with, with unfinished business translates roughly into faint spirit in, in English. But according to the traditional Japanese beliefs, all humans have a soul. And, and when a person dies, the soul or the recon leaves the body and enters purgatory. And there it, it waits for proper funeral and post-funeral rites to be performed so that it may, may leave this realm and, and travel on and, and join its ancestors. Now, when people die in a sudden or violent manner, such as murder or suicide, obviously, these rites are not performed. They're not performed in a timely fashion. There's no one there to do them. Business is not done. Yep. Or it's possible even that, that if the rites are performed, if, if the spirit is under the influence of powerful emotions, it may not feel that it, it can you know proceed on to, the, to join their ancestors. But at that point, the, the recon is believed to transform into a yurei, which can bridge the gap between both the spiritual and the physical world. This is a spiritual entity which has the ability to influence the physical world around it. So, again, very much like what we would call in the West a ghost. Mm -hmm. And really, in, in Japanese lore, this emotion doesn't have to be particularly strong or have a particular drive. Just any kind of emotion or unfinished business which may keep that spirit from feeling like it can move on to that next plane. E even a fairly harmless thought. Just anything that kind of makes it feel like you have unfinished business. Anything... And, and the way I kind of equate it is that nagging thought of like when you walk into a room, and you're like, well, why am I here? I mean, just those kind of th that, that low level, like I have unfinished Almost an business. annoyance, yeah. Yeah. But even those kind of thoughts are enough to, tr to interrupt the transition of, of the soul. And, and once that thought enters the mind of a dying person, their, their yurei will return to complete the action of that final thought. It, it, you know, before it can return to that cycle of reincarnation, it has to finish its business. So... I mean, especially in, in the case where maybe you, you know, a person goes out there and, and they're thinking, you know, this is it. And, and, and then, you know, like last minute, like, no, I don't really want to do this. Mm -hmm. That's that spirit doesn't get to transition. And so it's it's still there. Very uneasy. Now, they, they will continue to exist on Earth until they can be laid to, to rest, either by performing the proper rituals or helping them resolve their emotional conflict that tied to the physical world. Traditionally, typically, the more violently they died or the more harshly they were treated when they were alive, the more powerful a ghost they will be. So those people that were done you know, horrifically wrong will be the, the most, most powerful. Yeah, the most powerful, most dangerous. As you're saying this, I'm having flashbacks of, uh, I'll show my age here, the old movie Ghost with uh, Patrick Swayze and <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg, and, and she starts channeling all these spirits that just come up, and they all have a story. They're all trying to complete their yeah. business. You know, contact my, my wife, my mother. I need to tell them this. I need, and she gets to the point of just like, you know, back off. As far as the appearance of the URI, and if you watch a lot of scary movies, I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't heard before. Uh, they typically appear in white clothing with black hair. Uh, their hands will dangle lifelessly from their wrists, which they often hold outstretched. Kind of a zombie-esque appearance, I guess. Uh, usually they'll lack feet or legs. They'll just kind of be hovering in the air, kind of wispy. Kind of a vision of specter. Usually they're depicted as being accompanied by a pair of floating flames. I would compare that to a will-o'-wisp. Okay, yeah. Or they call it the hitodama in Japanese lore. Uh, they'll those those little wisps will be in eerie, spooky blue, green, purple colors. 
And these are actually separate parts of the Yure. They're not separate spirits that travel with it, but it's actually a, a manifestation of that, that same spirit. The energy source emitting off of it. Aoki Gahara is also said to be the haunt of a Tengu, which if you're familiar with Dungeons & Dragons, Tengu aren't necessarily seen as a bad thing, but in Japanese lore, it's a particularly impulsive or unpredictable bird spirit. So you sparked my interest right there. I was like, I've heard of this. <laughs> I've heard of this. And and also, you know, there are other additional spirits that are of the human variety, obviously due to the, the tragedies that kind of regularly happen there. Now, you know, there's different theories about what is causing, one, the suicides to occur in the forest, and, and more importantly, why it does seem to be on an upward trend, increasing. I'm no doctor, I'm no scholar, but uh, with my own studies and research for this podcast, you know, I think not so long ago, we were people that got out more. We visited, uh, we were working, uh, we were talking face-to-face, having that interaction. Um, you know, maybe on the weekends, whatever floats your boat, maybe you were out with bar at, at a bar with friends, maybe you played card games, maybe you played role-playing games, but that that one-on-one face-to-face, you know, in, in much of today's society, we do a lot less of that. Some do it almost non-existent at all due to the technology being so grand and the creation of the internet and online. You know, it, it's, it's ironic that a lot of people say technology brings us together and allows us to connect yeah. around the world. I think that was but a sales pitch the to same, get us to do yeah, it. At the same time, you are still a person in a room behind a computer screen or looking at a phone. Uh, and and I, I, you and I are, you know, similar age. To me, nothing beats actually going and talking to a person face to face. Absolutely. And I enjoy sitting at a table playing games with friends or, or family. I remember, and again, I'm going to show my old fuddy deadiness here. When when phones came out with text, I'm like, why in the world would I want to text anybody? I just want to call them. I literally, <laughs> I literally refused to pay for texting on my cell phone I, we, for probably I, the first five I years. Too. I did too. Now was, I find myself I've fallen in in you, kelter you with everyone else. You don't call else. anybody anymore. Yeah, you you just text. text. You just send words across the ether. You don't even hear their voice. But uh, yeah, again today, I mean. We run businesses online. Uh, we speak to others. Uh, at best, we might have a voice online. Uh, we order our groceries for Pete's sake. Heck, you know, uh, Amazon is getting to the point where even drones are going to deliver this stuff to your front porch. Yeah, you, there won't even be a stranger outside your door that yeah, you ignore. <laughs> the, the truck driver that you can run out and try to say hi to. You know, I believe as humans, we need that face-to-face intervention. You know, how else can we hear a voice to see an expression and truly understand each other? You know, with two grown children, myself, and I remember the the age when my daughter and even son, you know, they would have relationships and they would, somebody would break up with the other person over a text. Oh, man. And I'm just like, what? What? I mean, I won't get into that, but it's just like, that's so disturbing. (laughs) You know, we are, we are depriving ourselves of our natural instincts, our primal desires, if you will, by living this way. You know, to some, this is just too much to grasp, too much to comprehend. They, they grew up in this, and they don't know that former lifetime ago, if you will. And it does relate to feeling alone, sad, misunderstood. And you may not even make the connections to understand why you're feeling this way. And then, as I've had people explain to me, you know, Facebook and, and the different sites that are out there, man, Bill, when we grew up, if we did something stupid, and I said if, but when we did something stupid, yeah, when. there wasn't 
a gazillion cameras around well, to record was, it and to preserve it forever. There wasn't for a permanent record of it. Yeah, and and if you wanted to tell that story, which you know, Lord twenty not, years later or you whatever, know, you, you you have to tell that story. You can't just send the video to somebody. You yeah. have to sit there in a room and say, "Oh man, I remember when me and Uncle Mike got lost in the woods," or yep. you know, we were you know we did this or we did that. You you had to tell the story. That's Art. that's what we're doing here. You know, yeah. like you and I. Part of why we do this is just so that you and I can get together from time to time and tell each other stories. Yeah. And today's younger generation, honestly, I feel sorry for them because everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has bad days. Everybody does stupid stuff. I don't care who you are. If you say you're not, you're a liar. But now it's recorded. So you have a bad day at school, you know, whatever. You you trip, you fall down the steps. But now everybody and their neighbor and all the different countries are seeing it, and you can't ever escape that. Dude, that is, it is so bad that it has permeated our pop culture. I uh, watched a movie with my kids just recently called Ron's Gone Wrong about these little, well, it'd be kind of an Apple parody, but they build these little robots that the kids use as, as companions. And part of a, a big plot point of that movie is that this one little girl does something, you know, she, she is involved in something kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. and her little assistant films it and posts it on the internet. And then that's what she becomes known as. She, yeah, her, entire life is, her entire life is ruined at 12 years old because yeah. there's a video online of something ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's crazy, but, but kind of step, stepping back a little bit in Japanese society, I have to say, and I didn't understand it until I started doing more research, there's actually, I think, more pressure there in that country than what we even have here that we're describing. In in Japan, you are to become successful. In many ways, you're expected to help support your family, whether it be younger siblings, your parents, even grandparents, heck, maybe even great-grandparents. It has been that way for centuries. With fewer young adult children to help do their part to support families, it's kind of spiraling out of control. For some, still trying to live in that lifestyle, it makes it very difficult, almost impossible, for some to ever be able to leave their house and go back out as old culture and I'll say new technology, they're mixing like water and oil. If if you look at that, you can see how that puts pressure on, on a family. And like, you know, again, it used to be you'd have multiple children. Uh, and, and birth rates are declining mm-hmm. uh, across the world. So, yeah, there are fewer children being born to take care of the older generations, which especially in J- Japan, that was sort of that was, that the, was the cycle of life. Yeah. That, that younger generation helped take care of that older generation. You would generation. be in one large house with the whole family living together. And with the people that are still brought up with that belief, and I think it's a very honorable belief, but I can understand why you would think that you would fail. Well, and, and for some if people... I mean, if you didn't have that job paying a hundred plus grand a year, I mean, you think about it, you're supporting a lot of people. Well, and for some people, I, I feel it could also be the opposite too, though. There's so many people, especially in places like Tokyo, that you're practically living on top of each other. Oh, yeah. And I don't know about you. I, I get uncomfortable in a crowd. If I was around that many people all the time, it would just be too much. Yeah, I, I uh, saw reference, and it's been a couple of years back, but like, a, I want to say a typical apartment, I mean like a 10 by 20 or something. It was very, very small. Well, well then of course it goes without saying we had 2020 and the whole COVID thing. And I mean, (laughs) as if it wasn't bad enough already, you know, that obviously that hit multiple countries, Japan included. And think about all the quarantine restrictions that were then applied again, to your point, maybe in these small apartments or 
in a, in a, a large family household, uh, that adds so much stress. I mean, I can definitely see the Japanese government reported that, of course, just like in America, there was a huge spike in 2020 of overall suicides. And it's just, it's spiraling. But in Japan, I think a lot of it goes back to that old culture, the belief and new culture and, and that technology that we were all sold upon. You know, this is going to make your life easier. And this is going to give you more time with your family. And now instead of, you know, we went from a, a landline to a pager to a a zipper case phone, not well, to a cell used, phone. You can't even go to the restroom anymore without getting texts and phone calls. I was going to say, you used, you used to be able to get away from your phone. You yeah. could you could simply just, I'm not home. Nobody can call I'm me. I'm going to go out on the back porch. I can't hear the phone <laughs> ring inside. Yeah. I'm going to have a barbecue with my family I, or whatever. I, I'll admit that, you know, I'm just as guilty as anybody else and I'm, I'm addicted to the device. My, I, I can't get by without the internet, you know? I, I don't um, think I could either. It's sad to say, but it's truthful. Yeah, but I, I feel like I got to be, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, at news or I'm looking, I'm not a big social media guy, but I am kind of a Reddit junkie, you know, so I'm, I'm constantly, you know, swiping through. Seriously, I've probably swiped through miles and miles of Reddit over the, you know, just, <laughs> and, and yeah, like you, like you said, take it to the bathroom with me. I take it, you know, my phone's in my pocket all the time. And I, I won't, I won't get into a lot of this, but I mean, depending on what your job is, I know I had a former job that you're expected to answer your phone 24 seven. It doesn't matter what you're doing or where you're at. I've been called on my vacation and asked to cancel my vacation to come into the plant to take care of business. Now I didn't necessarily have to be connected 24 seven, but I do remember sitting in an aquarium in new Orleans and being informed that I had had three different team members quit. So yeah, I, I couldn't Guilt even enjoy much? my vacation yeah. without finding out what yeah. was going on at work. Yeah, nobody needs that. So we're going to talk about Aokigahara. We're going to talk about the, the Sea of Trees here. I feel like I definitely need to take a moment to talk about noted YouTube asshole. Uh, um, sorry, Eric. <laughs> YouTube star Logan Paul. Yeah, no offense here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Based on the content of the video, I can only say that this guy was being fairly disrespectful. And I'm not a big fan. Honestly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, as far as people who make a living on YouTube, there are very few of them that I actually enjoy. And and guys like him, he's very low on my list yeah, of people. not one of them. He posted a video on December 31st, 2017, of himself and his little entourage encountering a dead body inside of Aokigahara. Obviously, he received a ridiculous amount of flag for it and took it down uh, the next day. But even in that amount of time, it had over 6 million views. Which is exactly what he was going for. Yeah. Now, he did issue a pair of apologies. One was in written form and one was in video form. And uh, in the video, he, he implied that he was he was making this video in the interest of suicide awareness. He wanted to make sure people were aware. Now, based on some of the dialogue in the video, which I believe includes a scene where one of his little companions is, uh, hey, man, I'm not comfortable being here. And, and you know, Paul there is all... Oh, well, you you were afraid to be around a dead body? Yeah. It doesn't seem like he was very concerned about suicide awareness. Yeah, yeah. So uh, More on ratings only. That's pretty pretty tasteless. And, yeah. and just somebody that's trying to, to get some views. So, again, I mean, it's just disrespectful. It's ridiculous. It's just somebody trying to make a buck off somebody else's pain. And, and I can't I can't stomach that. Yeah. I, I just wanted to take a minute to slander this guy. Yep. <laughs> I think we're closing in on the end here. So, just to, to, to say, you can currently tour Aoki Gahara. The tours are not suicide tours. They're not ghost tours. They're not haunted no, no, tours. No, 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 This is a tour of the forest. This is a tour of the natural beauty that you're going to see there. 
There are numerous tours and trips that start at Tokyo, and they will take tourists to the forest. Uh, you uh, can travel alone or with a guide. The average tour costs about $200 or so, and that would include transport to and from Tokyo. Don't expect a ghost tour. Like I said, don't expect a, a guide to the forest, dark history. They are not wanting to embrace that yeah. portion. The, the locals want to want to push that reputation aside and, and, and portray this as the beautiful, natural site that it is. It would be like us going to uh, Yosemite or Yellowstone National Park. Yeah. I and mean, then that's, just, yeah. take in the beauty that, of nature. So uh, the tours will focus on areas of natural beauty and the attractions. Now, tours can take up 10 or up to 12 hours. Uh, but there are spots there for people to purchase refreshments and souvenirs. So they give you, you know, opportunities to, to wet your whistle. Now, I haven't said all that. I, I said we would say this one more time before we go. If you're suffering, if you're struggling, you know, there are people out there that care. There are people that you can talk to. I think we've all gone through some dark patches in our life. Yes, yes. And I sure. will say even, even something like this podcast, you know, find someone that you can talk to that's a friend of yours and record it. And that'll make a big difference. You know, I, I look to forward to, to the opportunities to sit down and record this podcast. They kind Absolutely. Of and, and the time I spend, you know, researching it, you know, keeps me from, from dwelling on, on the th- you know, things I probably shouldn't. <laughs> but if you need help, if you, you're struggling, the National, National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-TALK-8255. Uh, again, 1-800-273-8255. Uh, and just reach out for help if you need it. Yes, uh, please, please. D- don't think for a moment here that, that anywhere in the last 30, 40 minutes that we're glorifying suicide. We absolutely are not. It is a kind of a dark part of the world. It, it fits in very well with what we do on this podcast, but it's not something we advocate for. You know, get the help that you need. Absolutely. Well, with closing, we do hope that you've enjoyed yet another installment of what you will find on Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Thanks for all for listening. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for, again, supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it, as, hopefully, as much as we do. Thank you very much.